This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Westminster Seminary, California has been preparing men to enter pastoral ministry since 1980. More than a thousand men have graduated and are preaching the gospel across the globe, making hospital calls, doing the work of an evangelist and a pastor. The Reverend Mike Brown came to Westminster Seminary, California in 2000. He graduated with a Master of Divinity degree and a Master's in Historical Theology. You can read that work. It's published as Christ and the Condition, the Covenant Theology of Samuel Petto, available from Reformation Heritage Books. He was raised in Anaheim and served as an imagery analyst in the United States Army. He's married with four kids, and he's pastor of Christ Reformed Church in Santee here in San Diego County. But not for long, he's been called to pastor a Reformed congregation in Milan, Italy. Hi, Mike, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Well, let's cover the basics here. How in the world did you become Reformed and end up at Westminster Seminary, California? Well, I became Reformed mainly through the writings of Reformed authors and largely due to the White Horse Inn radio show. I was listening to this guy named Michael Horton in my old 1979 Volvo driving home every Sunday night back when it was on the radio from Calvary Chapel and addicted to the show and wanted to know more. And it was really the doctrine of justification that brought me, I think, into a Reformed understanding and interpretation of the scriptures. And then my interest began in covenant theology. And somehow I wound up at the best school in the world, Westminster, California. So what was it about life in Calvary Chapel and listening to uh, the White Horse Inn, listening to Mike? What were you hearing from Mike that you weren't hearing at Calvary Chapel? Or what was it that drew you into the Reformed orbit? I guess I would have to sum that up by saying my lack of assurance is what drove me or brought me, I think, and at least gave me some interest in Reformed theology. There were many things about Calvary Chapel that were good. You know, they had a high view of the scriptures. They weren't liberals. Um, you know, they're dispensationalist and Arminian in their theology, but I was very grateful for growing up in Calvary Chapel where I at least heard the Word of God. I was told to read the Bible. The problem was I never really learned about imputed righteousness and where I stand before God clothed in the merit of Jesus Christ. And consequently, I never had much Assurance. I was always afraid that, you know, if this rapture happened that we always heard about, I wasn't going to make the cut and I was going to get left behind and, you know, I'd get a second chance, resist the mark of the beast, join the tribulation force, and that would be my best bet. Because inside, I just, I had no sense of belonging to God in a right standing, in a right relationship with him through the person and work of Christ. And so that's, for me, what really did it. How did you come to say to yourself, I think I need to be a pastor? Describe that journey from what you were doing to pastoral ministry. Well, that would be back when I was in Calvary Chapel, when I think the Lord began to really work in my heart to want to follow Christ, and I was on this quest to have more assurance. But as I began to study the scriptures, I just couldn't stop from studying more and wanting to tell people about the good news. I had first learned about the doctrine of justification through a little book written by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It was actually several sermons that he gave from the book of Galatians. And once I got that, and this is back in my Calvary Chapel days, I just wanted 
wanted to tell other people about that. The transition then came. I was working as a youth pastor for a while in, at a Calvary Chapel here in San Diego. I wanted to learn more about the scriptures. I wanted to learn the original languages. I wanted to learn more about the history of the church, have a structure of theology so that I could interpret the Bible correctly and think correctly, really. And I'm very grateful for my time at Westminster that helped me do that. They gave me the tools. So you were already a pastor doing the work of the ministry in an ecclesiastical setting, and you realized that you were not as well equipped as you should have been, needed to be. Sometimes in those settings, people say to the pastor who's contemplating leaving that situation and going to seminary to get the training, well, you know, it's really not that important. You're actively you know, serving the Lord. The Lord is using you. Look at all these good things that are happening. If you leave this setting, you know, what will happen to the people that you're leaving behind? And so there's a discouragement often from pursuing pastoral ministry or pursuing the proper, I think we would say, preparation for pastoral ministry. How did you work through that conflict? Because I'm sure people must have come to you and said, well, you know, seminary is great, you know, if it works out and you're able to do it before you begin, but you shouldn't leave now and go and do it. Yeah, that's a great question. There were those sort of disparaging comments made at times, you know, in the past. Why do you want to go to cemetery? You know, it's a waste of time, a waste of money, and nothing could be farther from the truth. And if there's anyone listening to this now who's interested in pastoral ministry and you're kind of contemplating or on the fence, should I bother going to seminary? By all means, go and get some training. Before I went to seminary, when I was working in Calvary Chapel, I would compare it to you know being a, a heart surgeon who's only been trained in basic first aid. And you need to know the languages. You need to know the fabric of scripture. When people come and they ask you questions, you want to be able to have the answers or at least know how to find them properly and not having to constantly read books from guys who went to seminary. You should go and be a trained surgeon because you are in a sense a heart surgeon. You're a doctor for the soul. And to handle the word of God and to say this is the word of God and to proclaim the gospel and to get the distinction between law and gospel right, those are very serious things. When we're talking about the worship of God and then the care for the people of God, you need to have tools and training in order to do that. And I can't say enough about the time that I had here. So grateful for the training I received. You're listening to Office Hours. We're talking with Pastor Mike Brown, a 2004 graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, about his ministry in San Diego and his call to bring the Reformation back to Italy. Your first call is the call that you have now, and that is to serve as pastor at Christ United Reformed Church in Santee, which is in the southeast part of San Diego County. What has ministry been like since 2004? You've been there for 14 years, and now you're leaving. I'm not trying to make you cry, but I've been through that process a time or two, and so I have some idea of how that is. How has it been for you? Well, it's been a tremendous journey. I mean, ministry is not easy by any means. And anyone listening to this, thinking about the ministry or feeling the call to the ministry, you need to know that it's hard. Just read the epistles and see all the difficulties that you know the apostles went through. Nevertheless, it's also been a tremendous experience and, and a great privilege. I think that there's no better way to explain it than say it's such a privilege to be able to proclaim God's word, to care for his people. 
Yeah, Christ United Reformed Church actually started all the way back in 2003 while I was still in seminary, and it began as a church plant, uh, just a group meeting of about six or seven families in this part of San Diego who had asked Escondido United Reformed Church if they could plant a reformed church in that part of the county. And so during my last year of school from 03 to 04, I was leading this group and doing a Bible study under the oversight of the consistory, the elders of the Escondido URC, and we began evening worship services in November 2003. And by May 2004, just as I was getting ready to graduate, we began morning services as well. Dr. Godfrey preached the very first sermon in the morning, I think of May 23, 2004, if memory serves well. And it's been tremendous. We organized as a church at the end of 2006 with our own elders and deacons. And by God's grace, the church has grown. We've always hovered around 250 people or so. But I think over the years in total membership, there's been about 500 people that have come through. One of the biggest blessings is being so close to the seminary. We've had a lot of interns and students come through, and there's been a total of nine men become ordained who are now pastors in different parts of the world that have come through Christ URC and also what you know studying at Westminster Seminary. So we're very grateful for that. And then, of course, we've been involved in foreign missions as well in Romania and in Italy. All right. And we're going to talk about those two things here in just a minute. But I want the listener to get a sense of how you have matured as a pastor. You had some idea of pastoral ministry before you came, but now you're entering a different context, right? You're not serving in Calvary Chapel, which probably has one set of expectations about the nature of pastoral ministry. Now you're in a Presbyterian and Reformed setting, a confessionally Reformed setting. How was that, and how was ministry different for you from the Calvary Chapel years to the Reformed years? Well, the expectation in a Reformed setting is much more clear, I believe. We have church order, for example, you know, a document that we've covenanted together and agreed to follow as a denomination or federation. And that delineates very clearly the duties of a pastor, which actually is quite simple in the things that you're expected to do, to preach the word, to administer the sacraments, to assist the elders in shepherding the congregation, to catechize the youth, and to continue in prayer for the congregation, those five things. When those expectations are made very clear to you and clear to the congregation, you're actually very freed up now to do your vocation and to do your work, because there's a lot, of course, that's involved in each one of those. And so I would say that and working in an ecclesiastic environment or an ecclesiastical body, like a consistory or a session where you have elders and then a broader body, like a classis or a presbytery, and then also even a more broad body than that in your whole denomination or federation, as you're linked together in a Reformed or Presbyterian denomination, it's a much more structured environment and I think allows us to do the work of ministry to God's people in a more faithful and diligent way than in what I had previously experienced in Calvary Chapel, you know, back in my 20s, where it was a lot more from the hip, a lot more loose, very little structure, certainly no kind of church discipline or ecclesiastical assembly. So this is, I think, a more structured and biblical environment, more faithful to the Bible and the way we are to govern the church. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So what I'm hearing is that the elders, for example, play an essential part in your ministry. You are not alone. You used an interesting expression, assisting the elders in shepherding the congregation. Can you elaborate on that? What does that mean, and why is that so important? 
Right. So we believe that you know, the Bible teaches there are three offices in Scripture. There's the pastor, the minister, for example, in Ephesians 4, when Paul says that upon Christ's ascension, he gave a gift to the church, which is the ministry of the word. And he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, you know, during that extraordinary period of the canon still being written and given, but then also pastor teacher. And so his job is to bring the word. The elders, however, that we see very clearly described in passages like First Timothy chapter 3, and Titus 1. These are men who are in the congregation, who are gifted for leadership, who have godly character, and their responsibility is to maintain the purity of word and sacrament and to make sure that all things in the church are being done in a biblical manner and fashion. Their responsibility also is to shepherd the congregation and to make sure that we're all living our lives under the authority of God's word and that the things that we believe, our doctrine, and the way we live our life, our behavior, that we're accountable for those things according to God's word. And it's the elders, essentially, that hold us accountable. The third office would be the deacons, who are also described in Scripture, and they have a very important role to administer mercy to the congregation and to help exhort the congregation to show mercy to one another and to protect the congregation so that it grows in its mutual love and service. So you need all three. The pastor doesn't run the show by any stretch. He's a specialist. He's trained in the scriptures. He's there kind of to be the resident theological and Bible expert, if you will. But his primary job is to feed the sheep. He has an office of word, whereas the elders have an office of rule. And he's there to assist them as they hold the congregation accountable for their doctrine in life. I've known you for most of 18 years. And when you came here, I don't think you had gray on your temples. <laughs> <laughs> but I notice now right. that there's some gray right. on these That's tenets. the other side of pastoral yeah. ministry. <laughs> it's not always easy. So that gets to my question. In the years that you've been serving as a pastor, what have you learned that you didn't learn in seminary? We've tried to lay a foundation for you to prepare you, but obviously in the course of four years, we can't tell you everything. Right. You've had all kinds of circumstances and situations that you've had to face. So if you had to think about you know, one or two of the most important things you've learned about pastoral ministry, what might those be? Right. That's a great question because all seminary can do is give you the tools. They can't prepare you for everything. It's impossible. Just as medical school prepares a doctor, gives him tools, but he needs to learn still things by experience, right? And the same is true with pastoral ministry. There's really nothing that can prepare you for, you know, that phone call when you find out someone in your congregation, you know, has committed suicide or somebody in your congregation is in jail. When there's a marriage, you know, a couple that you love dearly and they've been married a long time and they're sitting on the couch, you know, in your study in front of you and they're yelling at each other. Or Wait, oh, been... hold on. I'm so confused. Are you telling me that you have sinful people in your congregation, <laughs> Reverend Brown? Right. Is that what you're telling me? Right. Not your congregation, but my congregation. <laughs> okay. <They're>, no, <laughs> you know, the, the bottom line is that every single church is a community of sinners, right? As Luther said, we're simultaneously saint and sinner. And sin is something that we have to, as you know, wrestle with and fight against all our life long. And through that sanctification process, the word has to be administered to hurting people and to people dealing with problems, either from brokenness and heartache from this life or pain and suffering or rebellion and sin. You know, you're dealing with people. The ministry is about people. You need the tools. You need to know the scriptures well so that you can help 
people and see them healed and reconciled and restored by the gospel. And, you know, I think the thing that's helped me the most about Westminster in dealing with these kinds of situations, if I had to sum it all up into one thing, Scott, I would say that Westminster gave me not only the ability to read the Bible well, but it emphasized the importance of the gospel and applying the gospel, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to help people see their identity in Jesus Christ. In many ways, your responsibility as a pastor is to remind people again and again of their standing before God, who they are in Christ, and the freedom that they now have because of what Christ has accomplished for them. But it's dealing with people. Those things you have to learn by experience. You need the tools as you go in, just as a soldier needs to be trained trained before he goes to battle. But yeah, it is the ministry. It's not always easy. It's going to be difficult in making that application. But it's glorious too, right? It's joyful. You've seen some amazing things. You were just saying a few minutes ago how that 500 people have at one time or another been in this congregation and that you've had a core basically of about 250 people. So week after week, twice every Lord's Day and in conferences and things, you have had the opportunity for the last 14 years to or 15, to minister to this congregation, to stand in the pulpit and to preach the law, to teach them the greatness of their sin and misery, and to announce the gospel and to see the effects of that in their lives. It's true. It's amazing. I still, after all these years, sometimes pinch myself and say, this is incredible. I get paid to do this. It's wonderful. It is difficult, the ministry. It's not easy. It takes it out of you at times, but there's nothing else I would want to do in the world because to have the privilege to bring God's word, to study God's word, and then to proclaim God's word and to help people and see them healed and restored, to me is just the greatest way to use my life. I'm very grateful that God gave me this opportunity and gave me the training. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential WSCAL.edu 888-480-8474 Westminster Seminary, California For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church You're listening to Office Hours and we're talking with Pastor Mike Brown a 2004 graduate of Westminster Seminary, California about his pastoral ministry and his mission to bring the Reformation to Italy You have a call in front of you a, a new call that you're preparing to undertake. And that is not in North America. It's in Italy. 
So, first of all, there are reformed people in Italy. That's worth noting because that's not something that, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, one could easily say. There are reformed people in Italy. You could have said that in the 1540s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, perhaps. And then after that, it was a little dicey. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> and right. then for a very long time, you know, it's not something that one would have said. But now there is a reformed presence in Italy, and you've been called to pastor a congregation there. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we got involved. Our church became involved in uh, mission work in Italy, actually all the way back in 2006. When we were preparing to organize as a church, you know, go from church plant status to official church with your own elders and deacons, we were looking for causes to support because that's necessary for a congregation to think of something that they can help outside of themselves, right? Support a missionary, or we took collections at that time for Westminster and Whitehorse Inn and a few things. But one thing we came into contact with was this Italian translation ministry by a man named Andrea Ferrari. That's actually his last name, Ferrari. And he was putting reformed work into Italian books that had never been translated. For example, Calvin's commentary on the book of Genesis had never since the 16th century been in the Italian tongue. So we wanted to get behind this because the way we came into contact with him was one of his translators is a member of our church. Her name's Simonetta Carr. She's the author of these children's books for church history. And we began supporting him. We met him. He came out and did a presentation in 2006. From 2006 to 2009, we developed a relationship with him. He was a Reformed Baptist at the time, a little congregation in Milan. And during that time, he became convinced of covenant theology and and fully embraced the three forms of unity, the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, and Canons of Dort. I made a trip over there in 2009 and did some classes on covenant theology, and they all together embraced this confession, had the children baptized, and became, as far as we know, the only church in the entire country that confesses the three forms of unity. There is no Reformed denomination, no Presbyterian denomination in the entire country. There are a few missionaries scattered here and there, but no denomination in the whole country. And that's what we're seeking to do. So in 2010, we ordained Reverend Ferrari, and then I've made annual trips over there to help strengthen the work and hopefully get some more work started. Now, by God's grace, we have another work in Turin, another one in Perugia. We presently have one man from one of those works who's studying here at Westminster Seminary, and we hope that he will return to his home hometown in Lecce, in the south of Italy, and we're hoping and praying that we'll be able to create this new Reformed denomination, one that does not yet exist in the country. All right, so there's not just one congregation, not just two, but three, two new ones in the works, and then a possible fourth, right? Altogether four works. That's extraordinary. Tell us a little bit about the work in Milan and uh, the work in Turin and the others. So the work in Milan, this was pastored by Reverend Ferrari from back in the mid-2000s, and I know them very well. I go over there every year. I spent three months with them last year. For those who are geographically challenged, where in Italy is Milan? So Milan is all the way in the north. It's at the foot of the Alps. It's in a region called Lombardy. So if you look at Italy, it's shaped like a boot. It's at the very top of the boot and in the north. Every part of Italy has its own culture, its own cuisine, actually its own language. Uh, Dialect in Italy is not just an accent. It's actually another language, a local language. But everybody also speaks Italian. Anyway, Milan is in the top and uh, big city. It's kind of their New York. It's the fashion capital, banking capital of the country. And that so church— It's a strategic city then. Very strategic. To be in Milan is potentially to put you into contact with people from a lot of places, university students, 
And you have the possibility then of sending the message out from Milan just by having contact with people who are coming into Milan. That's correct. Yeah, there's a big international community there. You know, it's not one of the more beautiful cities. When we think of the beautiful places in Italy, you think of, you know, Venice and Rome and Florence, and there's so many beautiful places to visit. Milan is, you know, more industrial. It's a congested city. There's over 5 million people just in the city itself, well over seven, I think, in the greater metropolitan area. But yes, as you said, very strategic. So the plan is that we're moving there in July, my wife and I and my youngest son, Ian, and I'll assume the responsibility of being the pastor there. And then Pastor Ferrari, he'll take the responsibility of planting the church in Perugia. And Perugia is in kind of the central part of Italy. It's in a region called Umbria, right next to Tuscany. Beautiful hilly. When you think of Italy and you think of those green rolling hills and vineyards and cypress trees, that's Umbria. And the city itself of Perugia was built by the Etruscans. It predates Rome. It's incredible, gorgeous place, but also a university town, a very important town. And there was a group there that had come out of a church that had fallen apart. There was a missionary, I think, from John MacArthur's church that had done some work there, and the church had kind of fallen apart, and the missionary left. And this small group began meeting and studying Reformed theology, studying the Heidelberg Catechism together. It's maybe four or five families. And they listened to the website or the sermons on the web that Reverend Ferrari has uh, posted you know, from his regular preaching on Sunday and got into contact with him. And in 2015, reached out and said, would you come down here and meet with us and show us how we can plant a church? Reverend Ferrari and I went down there in 2015 and stayed for a couple of days, met with him for prayer, did some Bible studies. And what they began doing was worshiping with the saints in Milan via Skype. Mm. So they gather in a house, they have a laptop, they sing, they pray, they stand, they sit, you know, along with the liturgy and everybody else, but they do it in front of a computer screen. This is how hungry these people are. There are no good churches to go to. I compare Italy with California. California is about the same size geographically as Italy, just a little over 100,000 square miles. California has 37 million people. Italy has 60 million people. California has over 200 NAPARC churches, North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council, over 200 established NAPARC churches. That doesn't even count church plants. Italy... 60 million people, almost double, has only the one in Milan, has a little tiny work in Perugia, tiny work in Turin. There's a PCA missionary, Mike Cugno, in the city of Viterbo. There's an international Presbyterian church missionary in the city of Verona with Joel Wren. A couple little places here and there, but the comparison between the two just shows this awful disparity. So the need is huge. The need is huge, and the people in Perugia, they have nowhere to go. It's five hours away from Milan. Pastor Ferrari goes down there every eight weeks, spends a Sunday with them, preaches, gives them the sacrament. This past summer, I went to Milan and led services, preached morning and evening every week for about 11 weeks or so. And Pastor Ferrari did the same down in Perugia. Lived amongst the people, gave them pastoral care. They had the Lord's Supper every week. They were thrilled and overjoyed. And so the plan then is for him to go to Perugia this year, probably in May or June, and for me to go to Milan, and then for us to work together also with the small group in Turin and to see this denomination established. The obvious question is, but we have to get into this a little bit, what is the dominant religious culture in Italy? Or what was it and what is it now? Maybe I shouldn't assume. 
Well, yeah, as most people know, Italy is the home of the Vatican, and uh, Roman Catholicism is the dominant, not only religion, but it has such a huge hold on the cultural identity of Italians. So over 70% of Italians identify as Roman Catholic. After that, you've got a pretty good presence, a good-sized presence of Pentecostalism, and there's also Islam and you know everything else, and cults. But do 70% of Italians actively attend Mass? on a regular basis? No, no. In fact, you know, you may have a few grandmas that do that, but the majority of Italians, I think it's fair to say, and I think you could ask most Italians and they would agree with this, that they'll go, families go to, you know, their nephew's baptism for a wedding, all of which is, you know, done in a local Roman Catholic church. They may go at Christmas or Easter, but it really, it's seen as part of their cultural identity. But that goes back also to the Reformation. Because if you look at the history, and you know this, Scott, that the Reformation flourished in Italy during the 1520s and 1530s. There were many cardinals within the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church who held to justification by faith alone. It was strange because they were pro-Pope, but they were also pro-Sola Fide. Because as you know, the Roman Catholic Church had yet to codify a position on justification, and they didn't do that until the Council of Trent, which I think was in January of 1547 is when they condemned, you know, the doctrine of justification, sola fide. But in the 1520s and 30s, it flourished. There was a little book called The Benefit of Christ. It sold 40,000 copies. It went all over the place. But in 1542, you had the Roman Inquisition uh, came into being, and you had few options then. If you were someone like Peter Martyr Vermili, who was in Lucca, teaching the doctrine of justification by faith alone, this well-known and respected theologian in the Roman Catholic Church, you could either recant and adopt the the official teachings of Rome, or you could flee for your life, or you could just die and become a martyr. And several people chose each one of those. And in Vermili's case, he fled. He went across the Alps and ended up with a great teaching career in Oxford and Zurich and Strasbourg. But since then, there hasn't been uh, deep roots from the Reformation in Italy. There were the Waldensians, a group that you know had started in the Middle Ages and had latched on to the Reformation during the 16th century and had a confession. They were largely wiped out in Piedmont in the north of Italy. They still are there. You know, they exist. They have a denomination, but it's completely liberal. It focuses on social issues and left-wing politics. There's no gospel. So the need is huge, and it goes back to this time when the Reformation was crushed by Rome, and Rome has always existed, and it's just a huge part of their identity. There are cathedrals in every single town. To have a cathedral, you have to have a relic. I've seen everything, Scott. I've seen the chains that held Peter when he was in prison. Allegedly. Yeah, right. I don't think they're real, but I'm just (laughs) telling you what I saw. I saw the wedding ring of Mary, a vial of Mary's breast milk. I've seen pieces of the cross. It's incredible. This is the stuff that Calvin mocked in his inventory of relics. And it's important for the listener to know that this stuff still exists and that uh, in Italy, nothing, in some ways, nothing has really changed. They're still peddling that kind of stuff. That's right. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In between the Reformation and today, there have been a whole series of important cultural and political movements that obviously we don't have time to discuss, but the Enlightenment and the turn away from divine authority to human authority so that Italy is also a profoundly not just secular, but secularist place like every other place now, I guess, in the Western world, but especially in Europe. 
So you're going to minister to and witness to a secularist, post-Enlightenment, nominally Roman Catholic nation. And so when you call them to put their trust in Christ and to leave their cultural Romanism, you're really calling them to abandon something that has shaped the identity of their family, perhaps, for generations. That's exactly right. This is not going to be easy work, and this is partly why I think there hasn't been a denomination there. And you're absolutely right. I mean, Italy's a strange place spiritually because you have, on the one hand, as you said, the cultural identity of Roman Catholicism, but then on the other hand, you also have the influence of postmodernism, and it's like all of Europe, just very post-Christian and secularized. So when you go with the gospel, trying to appeal to Christ with somebody who has this blend of those two things, this cultural identity of Catholicism and also this postmodern secularism, it's not easy. But then again, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, and we have to trust that. And there's two other places where you're hoping to see fruit, or where you are seeing some fruit in terms of church planting. Quickly, where are those? So the city of Turin is also in the north. It's about an hour and a half uh, west of Milan. And speaking of relics. Yeah, right? the Shroud of Turin. Right? The shroud, this is That's the right. same Turin where, right. where people might know of the Shroud of Turin. That's right, yeah. And tell us again where it is geographically. So, yeah, it's in the northwest corner. So if you look at Italy, the boot, and again, it's by the Alps. The Alps are all along the top of Italy. Sort of the Colorado. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, kind of like the Colorado Rockies. uh, Very big, beautiful. But it's also a strategic city, and there's a small group there of about maybe 30 people or so. They meet every Sunday, twice on Sunday for worship, for sacraments. There's a man there, even Forte, who was ordained in the Pentecostal church and made the slow progression to reform theology with his flock. Uh, flock became a little smaller as they became reformed, but now they've got this faithful group. In the same year that the people in Perugia had reached out to Reverend Ferrari, even Forte had done the same thing, independent of the group in Perugia, had no idea that there was even this group there, and reached out to him and said, can you help us? We don't know what we're doing. How do we become reformed? We are a former Pentecostal church. We then became sort of conservative Baptist, reformed Baptist. We embraced the Heidelberg Catechism now. We want to be like you. What do we do? And so Reverend Ferrari's gone there twice a month, makes the drive about an hour and a half away to meet with them, mentor them, took them through the church order, the Heidelberg Catechism, preaches there quite frequently and we've brought them along. A man out of that church, Vincenzo Coluccia, who was a civil engineer, had a very good job. He left his hometown in the south, all the way at the bottom of Italy, in a region called Puglia, to go to Turin to work. He became reformed and and is in this church, a very gifted man, gifted with abilities to evangelize people, to preach the gospel. He was involved with the Gideons, you know, they put those Bibles all over in your hotel rooms. And uh, he was, I think, a regional director of a part of Italy for the Gideons. Anyway, he ended up leaving his job as a civil engineer and coming here to Westminster Seminary. And he's the first Italian national to study here at the school. And we are very much looking forward to his return to Italy after he graduated and goes through the ordination process. And where do you think he'll end up? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Okay. (laughs) He'll probably serve some time in Turin, maybe also with me for a little while in Milan or Pastor Ferrari. We would like to see him eventually, and I think he would like eventually to plant a church in the south in a city called Lecce. So if you look at Italy, it's shaped like a boot. Where he's from is on the heel of the boot, actually the very tip of the heel. 
and uh, it's a very different culture down there, different world. Not far from North Africa, right? Not Just far from right North Africa. The water. Yeah, there's much more of a Muslim influence down there. You know, the north and the south of Italy are very, very different. But his father's an olive farmer, I think third generation, makes olive oil. And uh, there's just a sea of olive trees down in that part of the world. But there too, lots of needy people, people that don't know the gospel. Last summer, I was there with him for a week, my wife and I, and we stayed with his family, got to meet his parents, his sister and brother-in-law. And Vincenzo is such a, a natural evangelist. He was out talking with everybody in the street and knows pretty much everybody in his hometown. And he organized a little outreach with his own money, rented out a hall from a school. And uh, we went and I preached on Hosea and the gospel according to Hosea. And you did this in Italian, right? Did it in Italian, okay. yeah. Yeah, we had about 30, 40 people come and they were very interested in what they were hearing, very interested in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. How can we get a church down here and wanted to know more about our mission and what we were doing? It's little things like this that we have to do, right, to make inroads into people's lives. Okay, and how can people find out how they can help? Where can they contact you? I don't suppose you have a website. <laughs> well, you can go to ReformationItaly.org. We actually do have a website. All right, ReformationItaly, one word, dot O-R-G. And you are also on Instagram, Reformation Italy. That's correct. That's on Instagram and on Facebook, yeah, I guess. Facebook page. Yeah, all yeah. Right. Please go there and like and share and do all of that. And you can find out more about our mission on ReformationItaly.org. And you can even pray. Yes. Right? We you need can lots like, of share, prayer. and pray Please. for the advance of the gospel in Italy. That's right. Yeah, we need lots of prayers. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.